So for the very first time, I got to go out and stand and be part of the congregation while we sang today. It was really, really amazing. It is such a treat every Sunday to get to hear your voices from this side, but to be out there, amazing as well. So hopefully I can do more of that in the future. Let me say before we get started this morning um, that I'm extremely humbled to stand in this spot for so many reasons that I could elaborate on, and it would probably just be distracting for all of us, so I'm not going to, but leave it at that. Uh, throughout this week, while attempting to prepare, I missed Pastor Dave even more than I already had been. It caused me to think about many things that the Lord has shown us in Dave's absence. And before we begin thinking about the topic of worship and song worship this morning, I wanted to just give you a little history of Pastor Dave and the need specifically for sabbaticals. There's, a, there's actually a, a history here. So way back in July of 2010, the elders at that time had a meeting without Pastor Dave and discussed how, to, how blessed we are as a congregation to have a shepherd like him. We pondered how he had labored so well on our behalf to the glory of God for so many years. I think it was 14 years at that time. We wanted to consider what the word had to say about how a congregation should express love and gratitude toward a godly shepherd. And the word has a lot to say about that, really. And seldom will you hear a pastor stand up and say, hey, here's how you ought to treat me. This is what the word of God says. Dave will do it because if the text takes him there, he won't flinch. He'll he'll do that. But it's going to be rare. And... uh, Particularly when a shepherd labors tirelessly, selflessly, and with excellence in the word, the scriptures tell us to consider them worthy of double honor. Some of you guys know that phrase, right? Listen to these passages. And by the way, today, when we get into our topic and we start thinking about worship and song worship, we're going we're gonna to be jumping around in the scriptures. So I hope you have a Bible with you today because I want you to, 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 to kind of make that journey with me. If you don't have a Bible, I think we've got some in the library, and I bet one of the ushers will go grab you one. Or I bet you have a device. So you have permission today to to use your device and use your Bible, but no texting or anything like that. Um, I'm just kidding. I mean, if you need to text, I guess it's okay, but I prefer you stay in the Word. Um, Here's the first of many rabbit trails. Sometimes I text during the service because maybe Greg has a technical note for me or something. So anyway. Um, so listen to these passages, first Thessalonians five, 12 and 13, first Thessalonians five, 12 and 13. You have to turn there. It says, we urge you brethren to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. And then Hebrews 13 verse seven and verse 17 says, remember those who rule over you. And who have spoken the word of God to you. Whose faith follow. Considering the outcome of their conduct. And then verse 17 says. Obey those who rule over you. And be submissive. For they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account. Let me just pause in the middle of this first. I can't tell you many times. In in private meetings with Pastor Dave. I've heard him say. I have to give an account to the Lord. He takes that very, very seriously. And he doesn't throw anything out there flippantly. He's very careful when he speaks something to you. And if it sounds harsh at times, he can't but do that. His conscience wouldn't allow him to not say what he says 
or to say something other than what he says. So we have that. Let them. And so in the middle of that verse, verse 17, they watch out for yourselves as those who must give an account. And then it says, let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Would you consider that verse? Would you pray about that verse in the, in the next week or two before our pastor gets back and think about how could I make his job a joy? This is the word of God for us to think through these matters. Think before you speak sometimes. Um, let me just share another scripture. It's 1 Timothy 5.17. It tells us that men like Pastor Dave should be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. What does that mean? Double honor. We could elaborate on that. So over the last 22 years of Pastor Dave shepherding our flock, he has meticulously exposited and taught through, I think, about 20 books of the Bible, most of which are offered in their entirety online. You can hear them. He's written several books. He's even currently finishing up another one right now in his physical pain. He's been, I think he's been so thrilled to have the chance to finish that book that he's been working on. He's labored passionately in the support and training of pastors in Siberia, Sudan, Uganda, and Japan. Some of these places like Sudan, have, there are men that have transcripts of his messages, and they've been used as highly prized training materials for shepherds in those regions, still to this day. Uh, at one time, Pastor Dave was, re, uh, was a recurring guest on a Saturday morning gospel radio broadcast where he delivered powerful 20-minute expositions from a remote studio phone patch that was heard live throughout the Philippines. He has faithfully conducted intensive men's training in his home. He's shown up at countless events for any family in the flock who's asked him, including the performances of countless weddings and funerals. Let me say that the first time I heard Dave preach was at Debbie Hutchison's wedding. Uh, that's 14 years ago. That's the first time I heard him preach. And we were in California at the time. We grew up here. Don't hold that against us. We were out there at Grace Church. And John MacArthur was our pastor at the time. And I heard Dave preach at this wedding. And I thought, man, I, I'm gonna, whatever I have to do to get back there, to get back home, I want this man to be my shepherd. I want him to be my pastor. Uh, it was amazing. Um, so weddings, funerals. He's somehow always available and faithful to answer or return phone calls promptly if you can give testimony otherwise don't talk to me afterwards i'd like to know about it because i i i don't know of anybody that can't get a call back from him which is kind of a rare thing these days uh, i don't have the same record unfortunately um he's often provided essay style responses to the theological di dilemmas of or doctrinal attacks on anyone in our flock not to mention similar contributions for the extended flock of listeners to the internet that he also faithfully shepherds. One should rightly ask, how can a man accomplish all this? And this is only a shallow, partial list. How can he do all this? Minister to his own family and still have resources to consistently deliver such rich expositions every week? It's a good question. We should ask that. The truth is, in most cases, men of Pastor Dave's caliber spend a significant time away each year to download mass quantities of godly books, to rest, and to give their families some concentrated attention, free from the constant interruptions that naturally come with being a pastor. It's so, so needed. It's a, it's a must 
when you're operating at that level in that kind of a position. Just look it up among the highly gifted and dedicated pastors and people like that that serve at that level. You have to get away. The the sabbaticals are just an absolute necessity. It's a necessary part of this job in order to really in order to fulfill the calling. Um, I spoke with him, by the way, just a few days ago and just he was giving me an update on what he's, you know, he's finished a book. I don't know what like. And I was like, man, I was hoping that you would you had binged on Netflix and you were just being goofy with Nancy, but uh, no such thing. Um, He laughed at that. I think it's okay for you guys to laugh at that. That thought of Dave binging on Netflix, right? Anyway, um, so some of the most loving congregations insist that their main teaching pastor partakes in such sabbaticals as often as possible. So the sabbatical, not to mention, you know, a little time away, a weekend here, whatever, go send them to conferences, these types of things. So important, so fortifying for us, really. Um, So in focusing on the importance of this, back in 2010, the elders realized that other than trips to care for family members and one brief trip to Florida in 09, that I think he came back to like a dog that had attacked some, I don't don't know. Uh, There's always something for those little short getaways. So this brief trip to Florida in 09, Pastor Dave and Nancy at that time had never, never taken even a simple vacation, let alone a sabbatical in the 14-year stretch leading up to that 2010 meeting. So consequently, we insisted at that time in 2010 that Dave and Nancy take some long overdue time off. We wanted them to have the ability to not only take time off, but also to actually get away, not just stay at home and kind of still have people, hey, my life's falling apart. Can you help? You know, uh, but we, we this was our attempt. We attempted at that time to provide everyone with the opportunity to express love and gratitude to Dave and Nancy by giving specifically to that endeavor. We asked everyone to please pray about and discuss what ways their family could express their love and gratitude to Dave and Nancy. We asked everyone to Consider writing them a brief note to be opened while away. And for those that were able to give monetarily, we provided a way for them to do that. Um, so that was then. And the elders have realized now that we drifted away from that mandate. And that's a mandate that we saw so clearly back in 2010. Part of this is because we left it to Pastor Dave to act upon it. So I'll put some blame there. He's big enough to handle that uh, and to get away. And within a year or so, he began to pare down that thing. You know, he began to, he'll take a week here. Or we'll just go do this. And it, it just kind of became more of the same for them. And then in seeing the financial pressure that was upon the church, he just let it go. And we got distracted and we forgot and so I want to apologize to, to all of you on behalf of the elders um, and to Nancy and the Harrell family and especially to Dave for not being more careful. We really should have been on top of that. We should have been more thoughtful and insistent upon this clear mandate that was made clear to us back in 2010. So we're putting you all on notice now and asking for your accountability to never let us forget this again. Who knows for sure, but we feel very strongly that Pastor Dave might not have suffered an injury 
had we insisted upon consistent and significant time away each year. We really believe that. You know, most of us will never fully understand the weight that pastors feel. It's perhaps the most difficult and emotionally wrenching job on the planet. There was an article written and circulated through the Gospel Coalition, and I saw it last week. Regarding all of this, one of the phrases that stands out to me in describing the challenges of that position is death by a thousand cuts. Right? You're laboring for souls. You're pouring your heart out to care for and counsel people. You're preparing careful expositions. You're being consistently criticized and critiqued every minute, you know, in this kind of bootstrap society, kind of individualistic, don't get in my grill kind of a culture that we live in. You're getting critiqued. You're getting disregarded. Many times you're getting berated in ways that, that come across in a very just passive kind of in the South, a very kind way, but you're really, you're taking, the, you're ta- your takeaway is just, I've, I've just been berated. I've just, you know, I've been attacked here. Um, you're condemned and to top it all off with some regularity, you're betrayed. That's just the nature of it, guys. That's not just Dave, but that's across the board with many pastors that I know. But God, I can hear Dave said, holy smokes, man, lighten up a little bit. Gee, you know, there's good news here. So God has been so faithful and kind to us. Even through the severity of an injury, we've had total recall of all this. And we have resolved to not miss this again, ever. Um, To get Dave and Nancy out the door every year for at least a month. And with the exception of this morning, we have enjoyed outstanding guest speakers who have kept us fortified. In God's matchless word, right? It's been a great time. The Lord has been so faithful to us. So please pray for Dave and Nancy and their family that the Lord will grant them a wonderful culmination of this time of healing and rest and refreshment and inspiration and maybe even a binge or two, you know, of a really godly series. Maybe, I don't know, some goofy time. We all need it to some degree. I don't know if I have that on his authority to say that, but anyway. Next week on Sunday, September 9th, Jim Stitzinger will be back with us again. Did you guys enjoy that? Was that a good time? I was enriched by that. That's a student of Dave, if you don't remember that. Um, he was, Dave actually was his professor at Master's College and just such a sweet, sweet relationship there. And Jim enjoyed his time. He wanted me to thank you guys for having him down. And uh, he's looking forward to coming back again. And then... Um, Lord willing, Pastor Dave is planning to be back on Sunday, the 16th. So we want to be here and just have a great celebra- celebration. I thought about having like a, an orchestra here or something, but probably not in the budget, right? I think the answer to that is no. Is that right, George? No? Okay. Uh, but Joey Basham is on standby. He's on the tarmac just in case Dave needs a little more time. We want him to be absolutely sure that he's ready to come back. So let me pray for our study. God, thank you. Thank you for the riches that are ours in Christ. The provision that you've made for us. That for time and eternity, we'll look back on this little place in the middle of cornfields in Jolton, Tennessee. And be so thankful for the fortification that we got. For the taste of heaven that we enjoyed together. For the the rich expositions that we feasted on week after week. Lord, help us to not have big fat heads of facts and knowledge and good theology with little tiny wimpy legs. But help us to have strong legs and arms and to go 
shoot something with the weapons that you give us, Lord, to go with hope and help and encouragement and grace and dignity to give an answer for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect in all of our spheres of influence. And Lord, would you let us be better worshipers? And this morning, as we think about worship and as we think about song worship too, I pray that you would just give us a really solid vision of you. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see heaven. Help us to see what true worship looks like and to deal with maybe some attitudes that we have that are wrong, some ideas that we have about it that are wrong. And just let us be greatly encouraged in the gospel that we might be better worshipers. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. So, so, so honored to get the chance to share with you some scripture and some thoughts today about song worship is where we're going. But we've got a little detour to take first. We want to, we're going to talk about worship proper. This, this idea about song worship at Calvary was shared during Sunday school several weeks ago. And the other elders thought that it'd be good for me to share this with everyone this morning. So that's, that's why I'm up here. Um, if you were here for that Sunday school class, please don't leave. Um, I was in a great big hurry that day. I don't know if you remember if you were here. I was really, really rushing. And I also presented an outline of, and philosophy of small groups here at CBC. So anyway, this will be a little different. As we talk about song worship today, I hope that we'll walk away more unified as a local body of believers. I hope that we'll see that it is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that unifies us and that we'll all leave here knowing that it is the gospel that unifies us and not our musical preferences. Because we all have musical preferences and they're very different. And we have what we have available to us. I always tell people, I I wish my preference might be closer with yours, but I'm only capable of doing what I do. That's it. I can't, I'm probably not going to, I'm almost going to be 50 this year. Brian's ahead of me on that. Joey Basham, one of your elders, he's ahead of both of us, all born in 1968. And I doubt that I'm going to, become an orchestral conductor and arranger anytime soon. And the Lord just hasn't sent us more than one violin player at a time. So we're so thankful for Charlie. Thank you so much. It's beautiful. It brings a little taste of that. But so I I always just say, hey, we have what we have. So my preference might be more aligned with yours than what we actually do. So I hope that we can be unified in the gospel and see that very clearly and not elevate our preferences to the level of biblical mandate, right? Because it's just not. So before we go there, let me just say that although we're going to talk specifically about song worship today, the entire life of the believer is worship. Everything. Everything we do and say, our reactions, our attitudes, everything should be worship for the believer. And we pray to that end almost every Sunday. If, you, if you're listening we pray that, Lord, let, let us go out of here and, and, be, and have lives that are worshipful in all that we do and say. So I believe that if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that when we say the word worship, we don't just mean song worship. So I don't need to spend a lot of time with that, right? You know that. Everything should be worship. Conveys the idea that you worship from where you are. Is it pain right now? Is it pleasure? Is it parched ground that you're in? Is it plenty? Wherever you are, it's worship. Worship from right there. God's not ignorant to where you're sitting. 
where you're at and what's going on, what life's throwing at you. It's all for your good and his glory. So worship from right there. We want to be better at that. Think of Job's immediate response to the news of this, of his great loss. Do you remember in Job chapter one, Job's servants came in one by one with the worst news you could ever hear. You could ever receive as a human, his oxen and his donkeys and servants gone. The one servant was left to come tell him his sheep and his servants. That was from the heavens that came and consumed them. And one servant left to come tell him. And then do you remember what else? His children. How did he respond? Job 120 says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Do you see the riches in cultivating that kind of a knee jerk immediate response? You can see how that kind of worship has been cultivated in Job in that passage. This was his habit. You see it in verses one through five. It talks about Job's riches. Remember, it talks about his possessions and his family. As they enjoyed life, as they feasted, Job was worshiping and acknowledging the giver of such glorious gifts. I had all my kids in my house. Was it just, was it Friday night? All all my kids except one that's out there still in that place that we don't speak about. So you can pray that the Lord will bring them back. But so everybody there, and it is such a glorious time. There's not much sweeter on this earth. If you're parents that have kids away to get all your kids back home, right? I see the Omahans back there. Isn't that sweet when that happens? Such a blessing. And I can relate somewhat to what Job felt when he knew that all of his kids were gathered in their older brother's house. They would go from house to house and they would feast. Remember that? And while he was enjoying all this, and wor- he was worshiping, he was filled with worship. During these good times, he was worshiping God. Verse 5 says, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, all his kids. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. It was a way of life for him. Even as they feasted, as they enjoyed. I'm going to worship the Lord. Lord, thank you. Please protect my kids. Forgive them if they've offended. It's just worship all the time. This was just a way of life for Job. Always worshiping, always acknowledging the Lord. I can't remember which baby we were on. We've had more than just a few. Uh, When we began to notice that our first response to them getting hurt really played a role in their reaction and their ability to deal. So they would look to us, right? What do you do? What do you do? I'm going to get some young parents in here. What do you do when you see your toddler fall down? What's your reaction? Right? A gasp. <gasps> right? It's exactly right. You gasp, you panic. You might spring up and rush to them. Well, we, 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 we kind of saw this pattern and we can see just the you know, that just brought on the big tears and the flailing back. And so what we thought, I don't know, it was probably Aaron's idea. She's, she's super smart. Uh, that we, we decided, let's start applauding when they fall. 
Let's just clap. Yeah, all right. You know, so we began to applaud and cheer every time they fell. So we rehabituated that that process from shock and gasps and panic. So just knowing how we were going to respond and having a plan, knowing that this reaction was best, it, it just really helped us. It armed us. It prepared our hearts. We were like ready. I can't wait for my kid to fall again because we can do our thing, you know. Um, but it prepared our hearts, really put us in a posture of readiness when we saw our babies fall down. And without a doubt, it impacted them. Uh, their response to falling became honest, Right. We got to see the real picture, what was really going on. At times we clapped with joy when they were, <laughs> when they were thinking, when, when actually, when we were thinking, oh no, that looked bad. We are like, all right, you know, like it would literally look like a really bad fall, but we just stuck to the plan, our reaction, we're just going to clap. And uh, we thought, man, this is going to be bad. But guess what? They just get up and smile and just celebrate with us. We're like, and I mean, it wasn't always the case, but a lot of times that's, that's what it was. It was amazing. Even when it was bad, everyone was just calmer and more measured in their response. They were proactive in their thinking, right? Because we, we were ready, we kind of took it in stride. We weren't panicking. So if it was a real emergency, then we could kind of just deal with it better. And then they didn't have the added layer of, you know, my parents are freaking out. They, they just were able to kind of at least think through to be a little calmer. So I know you're, you're thinking, man, the, the sufferings of Job compared to your baby falling. No, I'm saying that we should cultivate worshipful reactions when times are pleasant, when things are going well. And when times are tough, worship is my default, right? That needs to be our default when times get really tough. Christians are worshipers of the one true and living God. So we cultivate worshipful reactions. We can find reasons to grumble even in good times. Is that, a, that's kind, is that it's kind of an American thing maybe, huh? I don't know. It's probably all over the world. It's a human thing. Uh, we find reasons to grumble. I, I, I never cease to be amazed. My friends that are more affluent, the more affluent they are, the more they grumble in good times. Have you noticed that? Do you have affluent friends? Have a ton of, ton of dough, ton of just leisure it seems like when times are good, they can find the craziest things to complain about. Man, my rental car got downgraded, you know. Life is terrible. I don't know. I just thought of that just now. That's not actually written. But I've seen that. If that's you, sorry. Uh, it's just staggering. But to worship in difficulty, what does that look like? I ran across this quote. I'm not sure who said it. I think it might be Piper. It was, there were some other Piper quotes around it. And I want to give you a little heads up. Uh, he was quoting someone that used an expletive. So I'm going to use an expletive. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to euphemize it. Um, here's, here's the quote. He said, basically, this is where the expletive came in. I don't care. I could care less. Think Scarlett O'Hara, right? Um, I could care less about who God was to you and your happiness. But now that you're suffering... I want to know who is your God. Where is he in your suffering? People pay attention. So what does that look like to worship God from here, from a place of suffering, from a place of pain and shock? 
Well, it's the opposite of grumbling. It's the opposite of shock. It's the opposite of panic. It's the opposite of gasping. It's the opposite of outrage. But, when, but it, it's, it's what happens when you're engaging regularly in abject worship of a truly awesome God who fulfilled all righteousness for you, who did all the heavy lifting for you. I'm worshiping. The psalmist said this, and I, uh, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me. And he heard my cry and he also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet on a rock and established my steps. He's put a new song in my heart. Praise to our God. Then it says, many will see and will fear and will trust in the Lord. It's evangelistic. That's your evangelism, right? It's not an awkward, brother, before you do this task at work, can I just ask you where you stand with the Lord? You know, it is, it is a natural relating to people. Getting to know them, getting to understand where their areas of rebellion are. And it's them seeing your real response to painful times, to to hurt. And to worshiping the Lord. The opposite response of worship. So the opposite end of that, the opposite response of worship is grumbling and complaining. This is what we're so prone to do when we're in a horrible pit, isn't it? Not even, we talked about it, even, even when we're not in a horrible pit. That's our, we're just prone to that. Philippians 2.14, remember, says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of truth, that we may rejoice in the day of Christ. We may worship, that we may, have not run in vain or labored in vain. So my prayer is that we would live lives of worship so that when the tough trials come, when we're presented with great loss, with great disappointment, we'll say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We'll say, thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of your loving kindness, your tender mercies in all that you intend to show me as I drink this bitter cup. And thank you for your kindness and not abandoning me to my arrogance in times of plenty and physical pleasure and comfort. Thank you for not leaving me there. And hey, when we get great news, fantastic. When we have times of plenty, I pray that we would worship well then too, that we would say, Lord, there is not a single element of this celebration that is not dedicated to you. It is from you and for you. Help me worship you and enjoy you in all of this. And by the way, by way of disclaimer, I'm honestly not sure what percentage um, of the applications that I'm about to give you. We're going to transition to song worship. I'm not sure. I've had this. Again, I shared it on Sunday morning a few weeks ago in Sunday school. Uh, What percentage of this comes from uh, these these applications from the scripture come from uh, people like Bob Coughlin of what I'm about to share with you now. It's just kind of a presentation thinking about worship preferences so, so appreciate his clarity of thought on matters of worship and so many other resources like Pastor Dave taught a series on this not long ago. Um, and all this contributes to my mind mulch. And in any case, all glory to God if this is helpful in unifying us 
in worship. So let's think about song worship. We talk about worship in general. So thinking about song worship. Remember, we talked about the top of our time together. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that unifies the true church of God. It's the gospel that unifies us. It's not our musical preference. We're going to be working primarily out of Colossians 3, 12 through 17. So let's read that passage together. If you have your Bible, then open it up to Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're going to draw two priorities for song worship from Colossians 3. And we'll get four precepts from those two priorities. Does that sound complicated? Sounds pretty fancy. Trying to be like Dave a little bit. Um, It's not complicated. Two priorities, four precepts. Got it? Okay. First of these two priorities... Heart is more important than art. Heart is more important than art. And second of the two priorities, God's preferences are more important than my preferences. Okay, I know you're saying God's preferences. That's kind of weird. His decree, his mandate. So let's, let's talk about the first of these two priorities. In congregational worship, song worship, heart is more important than art. Art referring to the skill and external factors relating to music and styles. And heart is the motivation behind it all. Okay? In congregational worship, heart is more important than art. Think about Amos 5.21. You don't have to turn this very short portion. It says, I despise your feasts. Take away from me the melody of your harps. It was the heart attitude that was wrong. We don't want to worship worship, for an example, or worship about worship. I remember as a charismatic song worship leader back in the day, um, we had a lot of songs that just talked about, well, I'm going to worship you. We never really actually got around to substantive worship. Um, at the time, it seemed great, but we just didn't. We, 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 we talked about worship and what I'm going to do when I actually worship you. And these kinds of things. So we kind of went through this process of getting rid of a lot of that, those kinds of songs. But 
It's a, it's a good example. Sometimes it can just be clanging and empty, right? But we must understand what worship really is before we decide what types of music to use for it. So that, that's the idea. We want to get the heart figured out before we work on the art. So worship is at least magnifying God's glory in Jesus Christ. At, at a very minimum, it's magnifying God's glory in Jesus Christ. Making much of God's works and his character. Giving expression, Pastor Dave says a lot, to the doxologies of our hearts. Right? We've got these doxologies of Christians. As Christians, the gospel is welling up in our heart. And we give expression to that in the songs and the hymns and spiritual songs and the choruses that we sing. We give expression to those doxologies. Um, we can't help it. We can't help express gratitude for who he is and what he's done for us as blood-bought saints. Uh, And there are many ways of doing that. Many styles of music that we should use in doing that if we're capable. But we don't need any instruments, do we? We don't even need voices. We we talked about earlier. Think about Romans 12.1. It talks about worship with our very bodies. Do you remember that? Romans 12.1. You can look at it if you want. Twelve one one, It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Just, just like we talked about our lives, our, our very bodies, we give to the Lord as an act of worship. So anyway, it's not art first, but heart first. How can I tell if my heart is worshipful? When I come to church, how can I tell when I go to congregational song worship? How can I tell if I'm coming in with a worshipful heart? Here's one way. And this applies to all of us. When we are in the midst of singing and we are struggling musically. For example, things aren't flowing as we would like for them to flow. Maybe on this side of things or on that side, the style doesn't suit me. Or the worship leader doesn't suit me. That's okay. Whenever I say that. I can't worship God unless X happens. Whenever I say that, the X factor is what makes me idolatrous in that moment. It's harsh, but it's true. And we we traffic in that, don't we? The X factor is what makes me idolatrous. We're saying that art, in that sense that I qualified, is more important than heart. I can't worship because that stuff's not right. When things aren't suiting me from the standpoint of art, I must focus on the truth about Christ and his perfect work for me. That's what I focus on. And can I prefer others around me maybe that do like that style? That's just a very practical way to be a Christian in that moment. Not that art isn't important. Skill is certainly important. And we don't want to just have gross, sloppy, whatever, ridiculous. But we have to keep these two passages that I'm going to share with you in in balance. If you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 33. Um, But I'll read it. So here's two passages that we want to keep in balance. One is Psalm 33. The idea of playing skillfully. We want to do do a good job. Verse 1 says of Psalm 33. Verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So Psalm 33, play skillfully. Do a good job. In balance with Psalm 51. 
the idea of a broken heart. You know, Psalm 51, I think that was read last week. Psalm 51, verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice, else would I give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Become brokenhearted, low before the Lord. Don't just sing. Sing with thankfulness and brokenness. Yes, emotion in our hearts. So first priority, heart is more important than art. And here's the second priority. God's preferences are more important than my preferences. Right? In congregational worship, God's preferences are more important than mine. Again, it's not really preference when you're talking about God. It's his mandate. It is, right? It's his decree. It's kind of a phrase that we're using. It's a, almost a device. Uh, let me suggest four premises that really define this second priority, okay? So four premises that I believe flow from Colossians 3, 12 through 17 for when we worship in song. So here are the, I'm going to just lay these out for you, the four premises, and then we'll just break them down. So here we go. They are, we must be emotionally moved when we sing. We must be emotionally moved when we sing. I know, just wait. God wants us, this is the second one. God wants us to show humility toward one another in the area of musical preference. We need to be humble toward each other. God wants our music expressions to be varied. It can't all be the same. The holy anointed music is not 1970s praise worship music. or It's just not that. It may have been, there may have been a form of that, but it's varied. God wants our musical expressions to be varied. And finally, Christ's accomplishments, maybe most importantly, Christ's accomplishments are more important than ours, even in that endeavor of song worship. So let's work through each one of these premises a little this morning. The first one, I know you're waiting for it. You can't wait to tear into me on this one, right? We must be emotionally moved when we sing. We must be thankful. That's where that comes from. Colossians talks about an emotion, right? To be thankful. Remember in Colossians 3, the last part of verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That looks a certain way internally. Do you struggle with this a little? This idea of it must be emotional. You struggle with that? If you're in my circles, then you do, and you all are. Um, are you like me? You're a recovering charismatic that doesn't like to use the E word, right? Let's don't use the E word, emotion. We can't say that. Uh, Joey, are you still with me? You okay? Okay. Oh, you were sleeping? Sorry. Um, we don't like to use that word in the context of, of worship. Is that you? We're like ex-smokers sometimes that can't tolerate the faintest smell of smoke. Anything that's emotionally driven, let me just stay away from that. Are you fond of talking about how Jonathan Edwards read the manuscript of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God as monotone as possible so as not to stir the emotions of his people? Do you talk about that? Have you ever raised your hand if you've ever talked about that? Right? We've talked about that. Um, if that's you, be disabused for a minute here. As I, uh, as I was when I ran across this Jonathan Edwards quote, 
from page 44 of the religious affections. Here's what it says. Jonathan Edwards. The duty of singing praises to God. I wish I had this up here. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. I'm going to be really obnoxious and read it one more time. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. It's not the instruments or style that should move our emotions for sure. I get that. But the mind's apprehension of truth about God. We should only sing songs that are packed with biblical truth. That's all. Yes, to be sure, people get manipulated into emotional frenzies, don't they? We've seen that. With music that's contrived for that purpose alone. That's all. That's the only reason for it. This can certainly be a distortion or a counterfeit of true worship. Can God use that? Absolutely. He used the jawbone of a donkey, didn't he? I saw that. Yeah, I almost said it. Uh, so I like to be really careful here because God can use it. This is my background. I came from these places and I know there's a lot of sincerity there. So I think we can, like ex-smokers can kind of tend to push away those whom we should be embracing and pulling in toward us. Right. And encouraging and blessing and fortifying. I think you know what I mean. The duty of singing praises to God. We read that, right? Two times. I was about to launch into a third time, but I'm not going to. So again, not the instruments. And yes, people can manipulate, manipulate emotions. We don't elevate emotions above apprehension of truth. God has ordained that we sing when we come together for his glory. And in part because, you know what? It helps us so much. The song should be wordy. As there is much to express and it matters what we say. Because the church has the very word of God. So premise one, we must be emotionally moved when we sing. And here's premise two. God wants us to show humility towards one another in the area of musical preference. You need to show humility. In this Colossians passage, passage, we see how we must treat this subject. Just before he commands us to sing songs and hymns, etc., we must put on humility. So why should I want to sing a song in a style that I don't care for? Why? So that I might be a blessing to those around me who do love that style. I shouldn't only be concerned about whether or not I like the style of music that's being played. Think about Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others is more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Look at Romans 15, 5. Why don't we turn there? Romans 15, 5. I get a little note. It says this could be a musical prayer. Probably not, but it's, there's a lot of terminology in there. It's kind of neat to think about. Romans 15, 5 says, if you're there, Romans 15, 5. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So be emotionally moved, show humility toward one another. And our third premise, number three, God wants our musical expressions to be varied. They should be different. They should, there's, there's variety. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This Colossians passage is referring to lyrical variety, but it can be applied to musical variety as well. There are many styles that can be used to glorify God in every way. And I have to concede, not all styles are appropriate, certainly in the context of worship. I can think of some styles. And I used to have a list, and I'm not going to say it anymore. Because I've seen some things get redeemed that really floored me, that I didn't think could ever be redeemed. But I've seen it, so I'm not going to pick on anybody. But we know there are things, obviously, in music, in the world of, not of the church world, but just in the world, there's musical styles and expressions that are so inextricably linked to the world and to Satan and to, the, to, to our enemy and to glorify the flesh that we, we can't really redeem that, right? But styles, it's amazing what God can do to redeem certain styles. So, Christ, uh, so be emotionally moved. Show humility toward one another. Use a variety of styles. And our fourth premise, Christ's accomplishments are far more important than ours. When it comes to song worship, that's the truth. The quality of the music worship is not measured by how much we cry or shout or how good it all sounds, although our proper response is important. But it is rather acceptable to God because it is part of a perfect offering of worship that Jesus Christ made on Calvary over 2,000 years ago. He has entered in and ultimately makes our offering acceptable. It's just through him. First um, Peter 2, 4 and 5. Why don't you turn there? First Peter 2, 4 and 5. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, First Peter 2, 4, 5. Here's verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. It's not ultimately up to us. It is Christ alone who makes our offerings acceptable. John Owen said, and this is quoted in our Sunday school book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges quoted John Owens. And we saw this, I think, two weeks ago. He said, even my tears of repentance have to be washed in the blood of the lamb. Our most holy contrition still has to be washed in Christ's blood to be acceptable. If I achieve an emotional high as the result of my worship, that's not the goal by any means. It is God's glory in Christ that's important. And my passionately extolling him in deep consideration of the truth surrounding all these things. So here's some helpful points real quickly. Don't ever sing mindlessly. I don't mean 
just, I mean, you could be on any side of mindless, right? I don't care mindless or, hey, I do care. I'm happy to be here mindless. Don't sing mindlessly. Pay attention. I know we sing a lot of the same songs. We keep a heavy rotation of good hymns and, and good choruses. But don't sing mindlessly. Don't, let, don't become like that eroded ground that just kind of gets hardened. Ah, we're singing that one again. Remind yourself of the truth that we're singing. Pay attention to what is being sung and not the musical style. I know sometimes we change a melody or two and we have to make it fit with this syncopated guitar. I've heard people say that the devil's in the syncopation. I don't believe that. But anyway, um, I know we, we, we kind of mess with your hymns at times and, and, and we're just doing the best we can. Pray for us that so we'll get better. But it's not, it's not the style, right? It's what's being sung. Purposely listen to music that is not your preferred style. Take some time. If you come to our house, we'll, we'll help you with that. We'll put some stuff on. We all danced the other night, as all my grown kids and small kids alike and grandkids. We, we danced. I'm admitting it. Um, purposely listen to music that's not your preferred style. Sing a cappella. Ask God to open your eyes to open the eyes of your heart to see his glory in styles that fall outside of your preference. When it comes to music, here you go. When it comes to music, the best is yet to come. Right? When we are with him face to face, we'll be worshiping him perfectly in unfathomable glory. When we plumb the depths of truth, when, when we hear Pastor Dave plumbing the depths of truth week after week, truth about our great God and King and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, it is possible then to reach the dizzying heights of pure worship with our lives and in song. So that's what it takes. Plumb the depths of truth. Know it well. Those pylons are dug deep here. So focus on the truth. And, and those are deep, deep depths. So we go to the dizzying heights of, wow, praise God. And in song and with our lives. It's kind of a layup. When you're plumbing the depths of truth, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, you're, you're talking about preference issues and you're talking about styles. And I don't have a dog in that hunt. I don't care about that. I could care less. Maybe if you're brutally honest, you're thinking, I got so many other things on my mind. I got so many other things that interest me, that concern me, that attract me, that frighten me. There's no way I could be honest with anyone here about the fact that I don't know really how to worship. It's not even a priority for me. I could never tell anybody here that, but that's what's going on with me. Guess who you just described? Me. You just described Pastor Dave. I know some of you are thinking heretic. It's true. Every one of us, in fact, unless Christ saved us and opened our eyes to see the devastating, damning effects of our sin and pride and isolation from our creator and owner, the thrice holy God who hates sin, unless he did that, none of this was a priority. We were terrified, but he rescued us. As he opened our eyes to really see our sin, he also, in his unfathomable love and grace and mercy, opened our eyes to see the incomparable glory and beauty and wonder of Jesus who lived the only perfect life and then suffered and died on a cross at Calvary. So it wasn't a random death, but a very intentional death. Violent, yes, 
humiliating? Yes. But worse, he suffered the utter rejection of his father, his perfect holy father with whom he'd always shared perfect fellowship. The father treated Jesus the way you and I deserve to be treated. So that as we place our faith in him, we're treated the way Jesus deserved to be treated. I know we, you guys are saying, we know, I know the gospel. Some of you are saying, I know the gospel. We assume the gospel here, right? But I'm talking to those that are sitting here and going, you know what? Honestly, it's just not a priority for me. I'm just reminding you. Maybe you never really heard it. So if, if we place our faith in him again, we're treated as Jesus deserved to be treated. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. End of story? No. He rose again on the third day. He defied death. He appeared to hundreds in a glorified body to the utter astonishment of human history. He ascended into heaven in front of many eyewitnesses and literal angels who said, this same Jesus will return in like manner. You're going to see him return again. He sat down at the right hand of the father, having perfectly finished his peerless and astonishing work of redemption for you and me. And we'll see him again. And we'll be like him. First John two, or 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we're children of God. And it's not clear yet what we will be. But we know that when we see him again, we'll be like him. For we'll see him as he is. And it says, everyone who thus hopes in him, who hopes like this, has this hope of Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. We're talking about the pursuit of holiness. We're talking about worship, Right? Beloved, now we are children of God. Praise God. Colossians 2, 12 and 14 summarizes all this so well. Let's look at that. Finally, Colossians 2, 12 through 14 summarizes it so well. 12 says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then it says, in you being dead, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Worship is a way of life for the believer. It's just a way of life. Congregational song worship is a taste of heaven at best. But again, in song worship, the best is yet to come. We're going to do that gloriously. My wife has a belief about what she's going to be in her glorified body. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's awesome. And it has to do with singing very loudly. She can tell you privately maybe sometime, but I say amen. It, the best is yet to come. Even as believers, guys, we drift, don't we? We're prone to wander. The, the, the old chorus says, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are, whether you hold to that or not, it's true. We're incarcerated in sinful flesh and we're prone to wander. We drift. We got to fight that drift. Luther's Latin phrase for this, simul justus et Peccator. Some people say peccator. It means simultaneously righteous and sinner. Simultaneously saint and sinner. We drift. 
He has taken upon himself our sin and he has imputed to us his righteousness. Praise God. We preach this to ourselves. We're reminded of it week by week right here. And in true fellowship with other believers, with other saints. And we sing of it. Old songs, new songs, hymns, choruses, spiritual songs, didactic narratives sometimes. What a gift. And I'm so thankful to all of you that I get to hear your voices every week. It's such a blessing to to me and to everybody on the song worship team up here. It's a gift. You should do it sometime. Um, It's a glorious taste of heaven. And it reminds me every week of the glories of the gospel. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the riches that are ours in Christ. Thank you for the glorious gospel, for the truths that we think about, that we're reminded of, that we hear in your word, that provoke us to love and good works and to worship. Make us better worshipers today, Lord. Have mercy on us for being enamored by lesser gods, for feasting at other tables, for thinking we're going to find in career, in spouse, in hobby, in talent and even music and other gifts that you give us that we're going to find an ultimate and really you are the ultimate father we thank you we commit this to you would you preserve us until that day together unified in the gospel singing sweetly to you until you totally perfect our praises and we join you in worlds unknown for tasks unknown all the while worshiping perfectly without sin without shame not limited in what you've gifted us to do because it's all to your glory. Help us to be starting that now, trafficking in it now, cultivating an attitude, a response of worship. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.